before you to hear your word. We thank you, Lord God, that we uh, want to be more than just hearers of your word, but doers as well. So, Father, work with us today. Precious Lord, take our hand. Lead us, show us, command us, encourage us today, Lord. Well, there's no one like you. So now, Lord God, may your word go deep. And may our actions be persistent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, great sports teams will often have one, at least one superstar. But one superstar on a sports team with everybody else out of shape will do that team no good. So if you got one superstar who's really fast, who's well-conditioned, and who can shoot well, for instance, basketball, but everyone else is fat and sluggish, they're slow, uh, they don't exercise, right? Oftentimes that can be disaster for the entire team. You see, every team requires that every member, every individual, be in shape. Isn't that true? Uh, because if, if you, as an individual on that team, are not in shape, then in essence what you do, you weaken the entire team. Do you not? So therefore, you must condition yourself. You know, the body of Christ requires you, a disciple, to be in spiritual shape. You see what I'm getting at? What I'm getting at is that if you as an individual Christian are not in spiritual shape, you in essence do what? You weaken the entire team. It's not good enough, uh, even in our church, to have uh, one person who's spiritually in shape. It's not good enough to have two people who are spiritually in shape. Uh, because, you see, the court of spiritual existence, uh, that it is long. And there are more than four quarters in, spirit, in the spiritual game. But there's many, many uh, quarters in this spiritual game, and you have to be in it to win it. But you can only win if you are doing those things that Jesus Christ requires of you to be in shape. You see, individual spiritual shape, it promotes teamwork. It promotes strength. It promotes health within the body of Christ. Well, last time we heard about humility. And the example Christ gave for us in giving his life for people that did not like him, which includes you and me, right? Uh, we didn't like Jesus. Uh, we hadn't heard of Jesus. 
Therefore, someone giving their life for us doesn't make sense. It's all in the imagination of the individual. Uh, therefore, uh, keep all the Jesus stuff away from me. But as Jesus was humbled, humbled to the cross, where he died for our sake, uh, he also required all of us disciples of Jesus to be humble as well. Remember, when no one is willing to humble themselves, there's always conflict, there's always mistrust. Humility, uh, humility must start somewhere, uh, so why not allow it to start with you? Your humility will foster unity within the church, within the body of Christ, in your family, and in those places where you spend most of your time. Have you exercised humility since the last time that you heard that message from last week? And if you heard about uh, the exercise of, of, of humility amongst God's people as with Christ being our example, uh, why haven't you put it to practice? Now, why is this question so critical? It's critical because it sets up what God's word has for us next. You see, if you've been unwilling to grasp or begin to practice humility uh, uh, with your faith, then guess what? This message is not for you. I tell you now that if you're not willing to be humble before God and humble before other people, uh, the message that you have today is not for you. You've never heard me do this before, but I'll do it now. You might as well just get up and walk out. You won't hurt my feelings too much. Why? It's because of the place that God's Word constantly takes us to on a daily basis. You see, if you're uh, unwilling to be obedient in one area, why should God now move you down the road? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. You have a role in your salvation. Hear what I'm saying. You have a role in your salvation. Now, I know some of you are already saying, well, wait a minute, I thought uh, it was Jesus Christ who saved me, but I'm telling you that you have a role in your own salvation. So, well, wait a minute, now you told us to walk out. I may walk out after hearing that, but I got to say, hear me out first. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. Now you see there, uh, Paul says that he tells us to do what? He says, work out your what? Own what? Uh, there it is. So I'm not making this up. Scripture says that you need to work out your own salvation. But hear me out. Start back at verse 12. Our passage begins with therefore, assuming that we are obediently engaging with what Paul talked about previously, which was the humility that we are required to have within the body of Christ with Jesus Christ as our example. So therefore, here in verse 12, it tells us that the Philippian believer has always obeyed while Paul was physically present with them. And the expectation is that they would obey when he's gone. You know, it's always easier to obey your parents when they're in, sitting in a room with you, isn't it? It's always easier to do what your parents tell you to do when they've gone uh, when, when, when they have an eye on you as opposed to them shopping or being out of town. You see, presence, the idea that someone is near you, it always elicits obedience because with presence, there is immediate accountability. <laughs> Most children would never dream of doing the things they do if their parents were staring right at them. Now, I got to tell you, but some of these days, I've seen some crazy stuff. I've seen children with their parents' parents staring right at them still do crazy things. For we are living in a different time. But when that parent isn't watching that, uh, that child, oftentimes the children feel free to do whatever the heck they want to do. I remember when I was a child, I told this story, and kids, and if you hear this story, please don't do it. Please don't do it. When I was a child, you know, my parents would have guests over the house, and one time one of the guests came over to the house, and they gave me a dollar bill. And at that time, a dollar bill was like $5. I felt like I was rich, right? So they gave me the dollar bill. So they're talking there. I was in the room with them, right? I'm like, man, you know, I couldn't go outside for whatever reason. I'm not sure what was going on, you know. So uh, I take the dollar bill. I'm in the room, in the living room with them. And I go over in the corner. And, uh, and at that time, you remember those days, right? At that time, everybody was smoking, Right? My parents had ashtrays in the house uh, because I always expected that when people come to your house, they needed an ashtray to put the ashes from their cigar or cigarette smoke or pipe. I had someone in the family who smoked, the, uh, someone, uh, a friend of the family who smoked the pipe. So there's always something there to help them get rid of their, you know, their, their, their leavings. So anyway, uh, whoever it was gave me a dollar. So I'm in the living room with them. And I'm just trying to figure out, I've told you stories about some of the things I used to do when I was a kid. So I got the dollar in my hand, and I go sit up under a table in the same room with them. And I sit up under a table, and then I'm looking, and they got matches hanging around, so I go and grab a book of matches, and I go back up under the table. And uh, 
So they are out talking and, and, and doing whatever they're doing. So I go up under the table and I said, ask myself, I wonder what would happen to this dollar bill if I light it right now. And yes, I did. I took that match and I lit that dollar bill. That thing went up in flames. And I'm like, uh-oh, I'm going to be in trouble, right? <laughs> I remember this day. So I take the dollar bill and I smash it down. We had, I'm not sure if you remember, Deborah, we had that green carpet in the living room. And I take that dollar bill and I smash it down into the carpet trying to put it out and everything. I'm like, ooh, that was close. And I look around. But you see, with everybody smoking, nobody could smell it. And I'm saying, ooh, I'm done with that. So eventually I take the dollar bill, I get it up off the floor, and guess what? The carpet is burned. Right? So right there under the watchful or not so watchful eye of my parent, you know, I was doing things I had no business doing. And I remember to this day, it was about two weeks later, my, my mother said, who burned this place? Who burned this place in our carpeting? And you know me as a kid. What do you say as a kid? I don't know. Did you do it? No. Why would I do that? I remember to this day. But you, as an adult, you know exactly what I'm talking about as far as accountability because you know when you're speeding down the street and you don't have the police watching you, you do what you want to do. But as soon as that cop car pulls up next to you, you do what? You slow down. Or if you know that you're going to be in an area where there is a speed camera, you will do what? Slow down. But as long as nobody is watching you, no one is holding you accountable, then you will do what you want to do. You see, Paul was saying that he had expected the Philippian believers to obey God's word when he is not present with them as if he was actually there. So, uh, pretend like I'm going to be there all the time. You see, we feel good when we hear God's word come alive as we prepare ourselves to immediately put into practice what we hear. But when we walk away from public worship, when it's time to go to work, all of a sudden, uh, that word which was so alive on Sunday seems to weaken in our hearts. Now, it's not that God's word has become weaker, but our personal resolve or willingness uh, to put it into practice begins to decay as each passing day ebbs away with time. Soon we think we have forgotten, yet uh, God's word, it remains inside of us, ready to be activated by our obedience. You see, every time that we ingest God's word, every time we hear God's word, every time we, uh, we read God's word, every time that that happens, God is putting something else on the inside that's awaiting us to obey. But let's move on. Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is our role in our own salvation? Now, when we first heard this verse, uh, we may assume that uh, working on our salvation means that without our active role in salvation, we would not be saved. But we know that this is not true. Our salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. 
And when we attempt to credit ourselves in any way for that salvation uh, that Christ sacrificed himself for us, we immediately void the work of Christ in our lives. So you don't save yourselves. I don't care how good you think you are or how good you think you will be, never at any time that you save yourself. Because if you did, then you would have hung on the cross. If you did, that, then that would have meant that you would have had such a perfect life that you could have been a sacrifice for your own self. Now, if you have doubts about the understanding of that part of it, uh, then we need to go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So there it is. That our salvation, it is a gift of God based on the work of Jesus Christ. Because you see, if we did it ourselves, then we can be proud of the work that we've done. But you have no reason to be proud of uh, bringing yourself to salvation because you didn't do it. It's by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. So now if we compare both of those verses, that is, the Ephesian passage with the Philippian passage, uh, they would seem to contradict one another. On the one hand, uh, there in Philippians, Paul says, work out your own salvation. And then here, uh, Paul says, here in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, that it is because of the grace of God that you have been saved and not based on your own works. Words are important. They're important to the understanding of what God tells us. But so is the context. Ephesians tells us that our salvation is all because of Jesus and him dying on the cross, his sacrifice. We know this to be true, and there is no issue there, even though some believe they must work to keep their salvation. So you don't work to get your salvation, and guess what? You don't work to keep your salvation. So working out your salvation with fear and trembling it refers to the action of obedience which every believer is responsible for in their own life. So once God saves you, then you have this aspect of now believing to the point of doing what God tells you to do. God saves you through Christ. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I'll never be what I used to be until you start doing some of that stuff. And then now uh, Jesus says, okay, now you're going to have to work it out. Why does he use the word working out your own salvation? Because there's going to be work sometimes. Because sometimes your flesh is not going to want to do the right thing. Can you say amen to that? All right, because if you're perfect, you need to come up here instead of me because I'm not perfect. Right, but what I am saying is that uh, sometimes there's some stuff that can overcome us uh, which can be antithetical to the whole message in person of Jesus Christ. 
So I believe, though, that in addition to that, that that fear and trembling part, it comes into play because we should know we are accountable for this progress. So Jesus says we are accountable for this progress as well. We must have a healthy fear or respect of the Lord, else we think his principles of discipling doesn't work, thereby invalidating him in his ministry. There must be a certain fear about who God is in us. I don't think that I'm saved and I get it all together. No. You must realize that God can call us to account at any time. Jesus is our decider. Jesus decides our salvation. He decides our future. So how must we now live in light of that fact? Well, how will you answer the Lord concerning the progress that you're making in your spiritual life? If Jesus came in here today and said, I would like for you to give yourself a grade And we know there's a lot of different areas that we can give ourselves a grade on. Let's just talk about uh, this book of Philippians so far. If we had to give ourselves a grade on humility and being like Christ, what grade would that be? Remember those days that used to have those teachers? They say, we, I, I want you to give yourself a grade for this class. You remember those days? And I know most of y'all, y'all always scored yourself higher than what you really deserve. Most of y'all did. Some of you all probably did really, really good work. Uh, but most of y'all, you know, uh, scored yourself higher than what you did. You probably deserved, it, deserved an F, and you probably gave yourself an A. So if God says, give yourself a score, a spiritual report card based on the book of Philippians so far, Oh, and by the way, there's only two grades that you can get. Either an A or an F. There is no in-between. Either an A or an F. How would you grade yourself on humility? Well, God is at work in you, prompting you to work out your own salvation, verse 13. Verse 12 uh, told us to work out our salvation. Uh, here in verse 13, uh, Paul says, it is God who does what? Who works in us. It is God who works in me. Here the word work relates to God's activity and not our work. Remember, in the first verse, it talked about us working out our salvation. Did you see that? And now in this verse, it talks about whose work? God's work in you. And this is the second time, of course, we've seen this word work in our passage. But if you look very closely, you also notice it happens again. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Very fascinating thing is, and that is the word work that we see there in verse 13, uh, two times we see it in verse 
13, that is the same word. And when we see it in verse 12, that is a different word, even though it's translated exactly the same. And they have a shade of meaning that is very similar. It's very different, though. Very different. While believers, that's us concerning verse 12, that we work or we continue to work to the finish the work that Christ has already accomplished in our life. But the work that God is doing in us, this is something that he's actively attaching to our spirit. Uh, the, uh, the fact that you are here demonstrate God is at work in you. Did you know that? The fact that you are here indicates that God is at work in you. You're saying more. I need to be changed. I may be tired uh, of hearing what needs to be said, but nevertheless, it is God at work in you. Change me, Lord. But guess what? God is at work in you, but he needs your cooperation. God is at work in you, but he needs your cooperation. You see, without the catalytic work and power of God, the ability to work to the point of progressive, we'll call it sanctification, being holified, is impossible for us. So if you don't agree with what God is trying to do in your life, he can't work that out. You see, don't just go to church, don't just hear God's word, don't just read God's word with no intent on doing what he tells you to do, because it would be better in the first place if you had not heard. I tell you that often. But the work of God is his power in you. It's like having a car, driving that car, and trying to get it started without a spark plug, or trying to get it started without gasoline, you're not going anywhere. I guess today we have to also use electricity because today there's electric cars. So if you don't have electricity, if you don't have gas, if you don't have that spark, you're not going anywhere. And then it is God that's sparking inside of you. God is that gas. God is that electricity because he's trying to get you to move, to do things that you should be doing because you are, I am, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. All of this spiritual activity is because of the Lord's desire and as you agree with this work through implementation, that we give him glory. When we cooperate through implementation, we give God glory. What does he say there in verse 13? Both to will and do for what? His, what? Good pleasure. Do you not realize when you do what God wants you to do that this is for his pleasure? God enjoys that. God enjoys that when you walk according to his will, God is happy with you. If you do not cooperate by working out your salvation, how do you think the Lord thinks of you then? So now, God's word leads us to another point of obedience for which we must take notes. What God calls us to do 
must be done with the right attitude. What God calls us to do, it got to be done with the right attitude. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. How you do something is just as important that you do that thing. You see, sometimes uh, your attitude can be, uh, I've heard some people say stank, right? I've heard that. That's what i heard people say. Your attitude can really be jacked up. I mean, how many times have you heard a parent tell their child, fix your face, right? Why do you want your child uh, to fix their face? And, and why is their face all contorted in the first place? This means that a parent expects a child to do something or to act a certain way, yet their face tells a story of rebellion and defiance. You tell that child to do something and they do one of those numbers at you, I tell you, for me, man, I, oh, man, I, I got to tell you another story, amen? So, yeah. I'm not going to tell you who it is, uh, but my daughter, years ago, when she was in high school, uh, you don't know who it is because I'm not mentioning her name, but many years in high school. Now, you, you remember those days that, you know, when people were saying, talk to the hand? Some of y'all remember that? Would you believe I was talking to my child? I'm not going to say it was a boy or a girl. I just said my, one of my ch children, right? I talked to my child, and would you believe they told me to talk to the hand? Well, that day we almost had a funeral. And it wasn't mine. Because you, you, you see when all that stuff starts to bubble up in the child. It causes the parent to bubble up even more. It causes you, you know what it is, it causes you to go off. It causes you to do some things. And that reminds me, I told you a story one time, one of my sons, oh, we just say another one of my kids, right? All right, uh, yeah, again, you remember the time I may have told you this story before uh, when everybody was, uh, I guess they're still doing it now, uh, walking around with baggy pants. I told my son, I don't want to see you. I want to see your underwear when, when you're walking. I don't want to see any of that stuff going on. And uh, he said, yes, Dad, yes, Dad, right? And then one day I decided to come home early and watch him get off the bus. I come home early, get off the bus, and guess what I saw? I saw that underwear. So you know what I did? I pulled up in my car. I said, hey, son, how you doing? He said, fine. He said, have a good day at, 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 at school. He said, yeah. I said, didn't we talk about them pants quite a few times? He said, yeah. I said, okay. See you when you get home. I drove on home. And uh, he walked in the door. And uh, I said, take them pants off. 
And I asked them that famous question. I said, whose pants are these? Are they mine or are they yours? He said, well, they're mine. I said, no, no. And I said, who bought them? He said, you did. I said, so they really belong to me. Said, Take them off. So he took his pants. No, I didn't whoop them. I, you know, I didn't whoop my kid, no. So he took his pants. So I said, hand me those pants. And in, in one hand, I had a razor blade. And I took that razor blade and I ripped them to shreds from the butt all the way down to the leg. And I threw them on the floor. I said, tomorrow, I said, you want everybody to see your drawers? Wear those to school. See, in that case, it, 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 it wasn't the fact uh, that he put his hand to me, because he'd know not to do that by now. I had a reputation in the household. Uh, uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, that he would roll his eyes. That's another one of those things that really causes me to go over the edge. It's not the fact he would roll his eyes uh, uh, at me. Uh, no, uh, but I figured that this would teach him a lesson. So I ripped the pants to shred, because uh, the way that he did something, his attitude was wrong. What do you think God thinks of you, adults? It's good for us to get on our kids, but what about when God tells us to be humble? What about when God tells you not to be prideful? What about when God tells you to be gentle? What about when God tells you to be nice? What about when God tells you to be peaceable? What about when God tells you to be loving? What when he tells you to be kind? You see, God is looking at us and we say, yes, I'll do it, Lord, and then turn around and do something different, just like your own child. You would not accept that out of your own children, so why would you do that to God? Why? Okay, where am I? So, that face, that behavior, it tells a story of rebellion and defiance. Grumbling and disputing creates ill will instead of harmony and goodwill. Uh, this, those things are a sign of skeptical questioning or criticism. When this is running unchecked in your home or in the church, it creates an atmosphere counterproductive to the unity and the joy which should be inherent within the body of Christ. The Lord has already seen this in Israel, whom he delivered out of bondage. So when there was grumbling, when there was disputing, when there was crookedness, when there was twistedness, what's happening is we ourselves are repeating the same things. Israel should have fixed their face, but they didn't. Because they were in rebellion. Again, this is why it's so troubling to a parent when a child's face is not what it's supposed to be after it has already gotten them into trouble once. So as disciples of Christ, we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and without grumbling, without disputing, without being crooked, and without being twisted because that's where we live today. We're supposed to be different in the body of Christ. God tells us to live in a different way, in a way that reflects who he is and the fact that his work is happening inside of us through the Holy Spirit.
Again, the world we live in, it is crooked. It is twisted. Verse 14 again, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, that's the part we oftentimes forget. Is that one of the reasons that, you know, Christ, he leaves us here after we get saved is so that we can be a light of Christ to those that we are around. And what ends up happening in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, what ends up happening is we started acting just like everybody else we are around. You see, the thing that helps tilt the scale over for, for us in our favor is uh, through our learning and to practice on a daily and by a weekly basis the things that we're learning in Christ. For some of you, what would happen on your job or at school tomorrow if you are not known as being a humble person, if you were, if you were to walk in there and to be humble tomorrow? You know what they will say. What's wrong with them? You know they'll say that. What's wrong with you? Because you always got something to say. You're always criticizing something. What's wrong with you? And then when you tell us nothing wrong with me, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you what's good with me. And what's good with me is Jesus Christ. You see, now that door opens wide for the gospel. Then you realize that, you know what? Life is just so unfair. So many unscrupulous people, dishonest people, they're just lying. No one cares. They're perverse and as a matter of fact, some people only get away. Uh, they're able to get ahead in life because of that. And then you look at how many people are in cahoots together. I mean, just listen to our news just from last week. You hear about officials and light sentences giving to individuals who are just monsters. And all these people, not just one person. Then now, oh, now this person knew and this person agreed. So what happens to us is, well, if I want to get ahead, I got to be like everybody else. That's the trap. How can you get ahead without being like everyone else? Ahead of what? What do you want to get ahead of? However, you, Christian, you must be without blemish and shining as a light in the world. If light is no different from darkness, then what good is the light? It cannot illuminate. It cannot light your path. It cannot light the way for your family. It cannot light the way for your friends. It cannot light the way uh, for strangers. You are the light of the world, Jesus says there in Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There it is. When you're lighting up the world, God is being glorified. But you're asking yourself, but how can I be a light? We just read there in Philippians, it is the work of God in you. All you have to do is cooperate. Amen? John chapter 8, verse 12. We are the light of the world because Jesus is the light of the world. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, we are just, or we should be, we should be just like our master Jesus Christ. If he is the light of the world, we are also uh, the light of the world as well because we are reflecting who he is. Therefore, if you are in Christ, then you can't walk in darkness. But if you are walking in darkness, it is because you are choosing to do so, and that is not the will of God for you. If you're walking in the light, then people who are in darkness are trying to figure out how you're able to walk so confidently in life without tripping and stumbling all over the place. Because the blind can't lead the blind. They're trying to figure out why it is that you, who used to be a nobody, who used to be a crazy, is now assured and confident. If you are a believer in Christ, those who have not yet believed should want what you have. How can you have so much peace? How can you have so much confidence about eternity? How uh, can you just love God so much? It is because of the work that Christ has done in me. Finally, your progress in the faith brings joy in the heart of those who lead, teach, and help you along the way. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. Paul is saying that he may be proud of those believers, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is saying, look, I've been doing all this preaching. I've been doing all this talking. Have I been doing it in vain? Are you even listening? Hello. Verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. He says, you know what? All that I have suffered through, it's worth it. If it causes you to grow in your faith, I can be glad and rejoice. Verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul told them, I'm about to, I'm about to leave this planet. But I don't want all the work that I've done to be in vain. So if you are in the body of Christ, you are on Team Jesus. 
Team Jesus requires you to work it out. Humility, respect, he says, work it out. No grumbling, no complaining, no disputing. Jesus says, work it out. Uh, the stronger you are spiritually as an individual, the stronger team Jesus can be. We are on team Jesus together. Get strong because God is already at work in all of us. Brothers and sisters, work it out. Work it out with fear, with trembling, with the love of God that even goes beyond what you can imagine or even think or have thought of years ago. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you are a disciple of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You have called us to work it out.